it's true that in the US, the whole market is set up to forgive business failure. Europe has been much less forgiving. You've probably heard a variation of the saying, people don't quit bad jobs, they quit bad managers. In fact, when I Googled this quote to properly attribute it, I was presented with 1,740,000,000 results and pages upon pages of articles on the topic. So yeah, people, or the internet at least, seem to agree on this point. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be exploring how much managers actually matter and what makes for an effective leader. We've already discussed the lack of representation within the field of economics on this podcast. But when it comes to industries or sectors where there is a real lack of diversity or gender parity, representation within positions of power in a company can go a very long way. And we know that this is not just an economics issue. Many fields suffer from this problem, including finance, technology, and most sciences. Today, I'll be speaking with economist Antoinette Schor, who we met last season in episode 11. Schor is a German-American economist and professor of finance and entrepreneurship at the MIT Sloan School of Management. She's written extensively on the topics of entrepreneurial finance, corporate diversification, and governance. In your most cited paper to date, Managing with Style, The Effect of Managers on Firm Policies, you and your co-author looked at a data set of roughly 1,500 firms in the U.S. to see how individual managers affect corporate strategy and overall performance. What had you set out to explore within this research? We were thinking about management, corporate structures, always very much from the perspective of theories that were completely lifeless and without people in them, right? There's a big challenge because you also don't want to go into an analysis that just looks at anecdotes um, and thinks about how an individual person runs her or his individual firm, right? Um, so we needed a way of saying something general about the impact that managers have, obviously in a situation where, you know, CEO promotions or CEO searches are extremely difficult for firms. They are everything but endogenous, right? I mean, it's it's kind of something that obviously the board and the firm frets a lot about. So you don't have a nice randomized control trial where you can look at managers being assigned to their firm. So what we realized is that especially in the US over the last several decades, managers, especially top managers like CFOs, CEOs, um, CTOs, switch firms quite a bit. This gives us the opportunity to separate the firm's overall condition from the manager's marginal contribution to his or her firm. And so by looking at managers who switch through several jobs and several firms, we can identify the manager-specific effect. And that's kind of where we see that individual managers have very individualistic styles, it looks. Now, in this first paper, we did very clearly gave economists a way of seeing that there's something special about managers. It doesn't matter whether it's endogenous, exogenous. It just seems that there are lots of changes that happen within a firm exactly when a new manager with his or her specific style comes to the firm. And what kind of changes or decisions did you find to be influenced by those in C-level positions? I would say three broad classes of decisions. One is around 
managerial decisions, meaning how much the firm spends on marketing, how cost-efficient the firm is, and also, you know, how the firm thinks about acquisitions versus investing and building from within. And that we found very clearly is in the control of the CEO. Then a second set of decisions is around financial structure of the firm and capital structure of the firm, how levered the firm is, how it thinks about debt versus equity decisions, stock buybacks and so on. We found that the CEO matters, but also the CFO matters. And then finally, we looked at decisions around the performance itself. And again, there we found that CEOs matter quite a bit for the return on equity of the firm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but before this work, which was first published in 2002, economists hadn't really considered that managers as individuals play such a specific role here. Why do you think that was? Economic theory previously assumed that managers are just another input into the production function, like, say, labor or capital, and that they would all make more or less the same or the right decision depending on the environment of the firm. And in a way, it was not taking into account as much that, say, somebody like a CEO of a firm is a very individualistic input. It can be a bundle between, you know, the human capital and the sentiment and the mood that a person has and the type of leadership style that the person has. All is kind of a combination that goes into the CEO's decision-making. Their paper has exactly grappled with this idea Is it the fact that CEOs differ in their human capital and therefore some make different decisions based on quality? There's more and more now also literature that thinks about the behavioral aspects of a CEO. The fact that some people maybe are more inspiring than other and therefore might be able to allow the firm to take more risks just because maybe employees are more willing to follow someone who is more charismatic, etc. So based on all your research on this topic, have you found proof that certain managerial styles are more successful or impactful than others? You're going towards uh, causation, which as an economist, we're always a bit careful about. Um, I think what we can say is that there are clearly big differences in how managers run their firms. And I think from our work, we saw that there is a correlation with certain styles and performance. In particular, we found that managers who acquire a lot of firms, who spend a lot on cost of running the firm and who spend a lot on marketing, tend to have worse performance than managers who are more conscientious about the cost structure of their firm and who also don't lever up that much. Now, in this first paper, right, we were quite careful in not over-interpreting the results because you could say that certain type of managerial styles might match with firms that are either in trouble or, you know, are doing very well. And so from that work per se, it was tougher to say that there was this kind of, you know, correlation. But there's obviously a lot of work in the profession that has, for example, shown how the stock market responds to the hiring of certain CEOs. I have some work with a former student of mine, for example, where we look at how the stock market responds to the hiring of CEOs that either were growing up during a recession, meaning having their first job in a recession versus in a in a boom time. And you see that those managers have different styles and the stock market reacts very differently to them. So I think it's not too far of a stretch to think that there is a correlation between styles and performance. 
You also established a link between older executives making more conservative decisions and people with an MBA degree making more aggressive decisions. Is it really that easily distinguishable? We collected data, more fine-grained information about the people, the CEOs. And so one that we looked at was age and also the education that people have. And we did find that having an MBA degree or being a CEO with an MBA degree, these CEOs had different styles. Now, again, right, it could be that the MBA produces people with different styles, or it could be that people already, you know, have a more maybe risk-taking attitudes toward business are the ones who go to an MBA program and then end up being CEOs with an MBA, right? But overall, we thought it was interesting. We even found that different types of MBA programs produce different type of managerial styles. We didn't include this in the paper, but it's interesting to see, right, this kind of difference. Ultimately, I think it all shows that the personality of the CEO very much matters for the type of decisions she or he makes. Let's switch to entrepreneurship more generally, one of your key research areas. Arguably, an entrepreneurial spirit goes hand in hand with innovation. Entrepreneurship and innovation seem to flourish more so in the U.S. than in other countries. As a German-born but American resident for most of your life now, how do you view this American dream and the approach to business? There's a lot of technological innovation. There are lots of young people with very good education that are going into entrepreneurship. I think the young generation in business understands that Entrepreneurship has lots of benefits for their own lives, maybe also actually for their feeling of self-realization, being their own boss, doing something exciting and new, right? And people are very prepared to take those risks. The ecosystem in the US is fantastic for this. I think where we have seen a reduction in entrepreneurship is at the level of self-employment for people with you know, much smaller firms and firms in industries that are not the tech industries. So there's a lot of recent research that suggests that, say, at the level of the corner grocery store, the small manufacturing firm, we've seen a decline in entrepreneurship in the U.S. What it shows is that there is, unfortunately, this big dichotomy in the U.S., the inequality between rural areas and city areas, the cities where you have lots of technology and lots of people involved and engaged in new technologies, you see entrepreneurship thriving. But the places where it's tougher to have access to new technologies, we see also entrepreneurship suffering a lot. Are there any large discrepancies between Germany and the U.S. when it comes to business that are surprising, exciting, or even alarming to you? The trend away from IPOs and many more firms being acquired by larger firms might ring particularly worrisome to me as a German because, you know, I grew up in an economy where if you were a tech firm, IPO market doesn't really exist that much in Germany. This is obviously not good because it means that the bargaining power rests with the large firms and not with the startups. I don't think the U.S. is all the way there yet, (laughs) luckily not. There's actually quite a bit of competition between different tech giants at this point in buying startups. But I think in general, in the long run, I would be very worried if it feeds more and more into the kind of superstar economy phenomenon that we've seen more broadly in the U.S. What we have seen is that many of the new 
industries that have come up in the U.S. all have one thing in common, which is that economies of scale and scope are really strong in those industries. And so once you are a firm that has a big customer base, it's much easier as a startup to join a big firm that already has a big customer base and just have your product also be sold through this amazing platform or infrastructure that the, the large firm already has, rather than try to rebuild all these things by yourself. Even if you thought that these big tech firms should compete with each other, it makes it easier to collude. And I think also in the long run, it makes it easier to affect the political process, the regulatory process, in a way to create barriers to newcomers. And that cannot be a good thing. And what kind of barriers are we speaking about here? There have been lots of implicit and explicit barriers to entry that have cropped up, even in the U.S., over the last decades. Some of those seem like very benign things, like licensing and constraints on who can start what type of firm. Ultimately, those seem to create disincentives for certain people to, to become entrepreneurs or to enter the market. Now, the bigger question is whether this tendency of seeing these very big tech firms grow in the U.S., is that the result of pure concentration? Or is it really that this is a move towards efficiency, where some technologies have just such big economies of scale that it makes sense that you don't want to have 15 New York stock exchanges, right? We convince ourselves that these economies of scale are very important. We then have to think very hard how to regulate those big tech firms in order, on the one hand, not to destroy incentives for people to innovate, but at the same time allow new firms to enter the playing field. There's this culture of move fast, break things for tech firms in the US and Europe alike, particularly at startups. What do you think of this as a motto for entrepreneurs or managers? It's true that in the US, the whole market is set up to forgive failure, I mean business failure. So many entrepreneurs pride themselves to say that they are second time entrepreneur. And they are very happy to say my first firm failed, but I learned a ton from it. And so the second time around, I will not make the mistakes again that I made in the past. Europe has been much less forgiving. Lots of very talented people feel it's too big of a risk for them to then start a firm, right? The US was probably much earlier than many other countries in recognizing that the fact that high-risk ventures fail is not always the fault of the entrepreneur. It's just, you know, part of taking risk. What's very encouraging, I feel, is that this insight has become a bit more prevalent in many countries. In places like China and India, there's definitely more willingness of young and talented people to take risks, to become entrepreneurs. We now see a very positive dynamic starting. Join us next week where we'll be exploring the interplay between women's rights and economic development. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS.
This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.